Today is part 18, part 18 of our journey through the book of Joshua. And if you ever miss a Sunday, all these sermons are online. You can go to SoundCloud, search Lynchburg City Church, or go to the website and and hear them there. But today is part 18 of our journey through the book of Joshua. I think we started back in April. And uh, we have sliced and diced through these verses. And today is always a bittersweet day when we come to the close, kind of of a saga of this story in Joshua, the, the final chapter. And we're going to begin today in chapter 24. We're also going to end with chapter 24. And there is certainly uh, some similarities between chapters 23 and 24. Uh, Joshua is having kind of a huddle. He's at the end of his life. He's 110 years old. He is a very, very old man. He's about to die. And he's having this kind of group huddle, bringing everyone in to give them final words, final thoughts, final encouragements, final warnings. And we saw, obviously, some of those warnings last week and his concern that the people would get themselves entangled in romantic relationships they had no business getting themselves into. And now here in chapter 24, we see continued warnings, and and like I said, very similar thoughts with, I think, one major distinction, and that chapter 24 is going to contain a covenantal renewal ceremony. That's probably the big distinction that we'll see here. They're going to have a covenantal renewal ceremony. And that might seem like a strange thing, especially if you have no idea what a covenantal renewal ceremony is, then that, that would seem strange. I think certainly at Lynchburg City Church and other churches, other churches that both prioritize membership and also a church like ours where every year we recovenant with the members. Not because there's a a biblical command to do so, but certainly because there is a a practical benefit from it for the members of Lynchburg City Church to re-covenant, that is to come together and, and to recall the promises and the commitments that they made both to the other members and to God. Because at the end of the day, we're prone to forget our promises sometimes. We're prone to forget our commitment sometimes. We are, and and Israel is no different. And so that's a a major distinction between chapter 23 and 24, is that 24 will have this covenantal renewal ceremony to give the people the opportunity to think about just what it is that it means to be the covenant people of God. What are the implications? Because they're just as prone to forget and wander from God as we are. And so that's the backdrop. Now for the text. Chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. The phrase, presented themselves before God, is an expression that we find nowhere else other than Joshua. It signifies that when they're presenting themselves before God, they're literally doing this before the Ark of the Covenant. This is a very holy, this is a very sacred, very important thing that they're doing. And also, where they're doing it is also of importance. They're doing it at Shechem. Now, up until this point, when they would have their big national gatherings, they would gather at Shiloh. You look at chapter 18, verse 1, and it's Shiloh. But now they're gathering at Shechem. 
But this is more than just a change of location. For us, our big gatherings each week, we have many gatherings, but the big ones where we all come together, we gather at 804 Leesville Road, otherwise known as the building of Marsh Memorial United Methodist, of where we sit here today. Well, Shechem is where they're gathering. But this is more than just a change of location. Because it was at Shechem centuries earlier in Genesis chapter 12, 6-7. It was at Shechem when God first promised to give Abraham the land. And now centuries later, God's promises had finally come full circle. And the covenant in which they were renewing their commitment to God is happening at the very place centuries earlier where God promised to give them the very land that they now have taken. And that, of course, as we've said just about every week, is the major theme of the book of Joshua. We think of the battles in Joshua. The battles kind of, they they really steal the thunder. But this is a book mainly about the land and God being a God we can trust, God being a faithful God who keeps his promises. And now they've got the land at the very spot where centuries earlier, Father Abraham was given that promise that God would give him land in Genesis 12, 6-7. And then he continues, verse 2, And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. The beginning of chapter 23, Joshua gets everyone huddled together. And he reminds them of the faithfulness of God. Here in chapter 24, he gets everyone together and he reminds them of the unfaithfulness of their ancestors. Chapter 23, let me tell you how great, how faithful God is. Chapter 24, let's all get together and let me tell you how completely not faithful your fathers were. They served other gods. Terah, Abraham's father, along with his brother, Nahor, and even his brother Haran, who the text doesn't mention, but Genesis eleven twenty-seven, 27, we know he had another brother. They served other gods. This is truly remarkable. It's truly remarkable when you consider the fact, or beg the question, why Abraham? Why not Nahor, his brother, or Haran, his brother? Why, why Father Abraham? Like we know God called Abraham, but why? Because here's a guy who's not interested in God. Here's a guy who's not looking for God. Here's a guy who's not serving God. And he calls him. He's serving other gods. And he chooses Abraham. Could have chose his brother. But of course, this is not a new idea that's introduced just now in the story of Joshua because at the end of Joshua chapter 10 we learn that besides Rahab and the Gibeonites none of the people received mercy. They were all cut down receiving the justice of God by the sword of the Israelites and we raise the question back at the end of chapter 10 what's the difference between all the other Canaanites and the Gibeonites who by the way lied their way in chapter 9 
into entering into an alliance with the Israelites under false pretenses. They said, hey, we're not who you think you are. We're not who you think we are. Um, and pretended to be someone they weren't so that they wouldn't die. And trick and lied to the Israelites. Or Rahab. You guys know the story of Rahab? She's in the adult entertainment industry. Okay? She's a prostitute. Why do they receive mercy? What are the Gibeonites? I mean, these guys were slime bags. Lying their way into this alliance? Why do they receive mercy? Why is it Abraham? Why not any one of his brothers? They're all serving other gods. They're not interested in God. And of course, this is something that the Apostle Paul in the ninth chapter of Romans gives us some help in understanding. In Romans chapter 9, do you have that slide? You almost have that slide. In Romans chapter 9, 15, when understanding the mercy of God, this is what the Apostle Paul says. Now, there's a direct quote, and then after the quote, Paul gives a commentary on how we should understand this. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Why? What's the difference? What's the difference between any of these biblical characters? Father Abraham, who's introduced here as, oh, by the way, not the greatest faithful example of someone who's following God. In fact, doing the absolute opposite. What's the difference? And the answer is, there is no difference between Abraham or the Gibeonites or Rahab. Nor some of us, for that matter. See, what this means is this. That even the worst of sinners are candidates for God's grace. This is really good news. Like, your background has nothing to do with God's choice in showing His mercy and compassion. That's good news for many of you in here who have fumbled the ball so bad or so repeatedly, you've made so many mistakes to hear this, right? Some of you need to hear this right now. That even the worst of sinners are candidates for God's grace. We struggle with this, right? Like, why Abraham? Why Rahab? Why the Kivianites? Like, why? Why? And the answer is God. And of course, we understand this in wake of text like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, so that none of us one day stand before God and say or boast about how awesome we are. Like, at the heart of, if you wouldn't mind going back to Joshua 24, 2, at the heart, at the heart of understanding the unfaithfulness of not just Abraham, but so many of these other biblical characters, is understanding the heart of the Gospel. It's good news for sinners Especially those of us who are really big sinners. That's really good news because at the heart of the gospel is the understanding is that not that any one of us have it all together. At the heart of the gospel is that you suck. That's, that's at the heart of the gospel. That's, that's Joe's paraphrase. I could, I could quote Isaiah 64, 6. And the prophet says, even our most righteous works are like filthy rags. I could say that, especially when you understand in the original language, the filthy rags that Isaiah is speaking of are rags that women would use to conduct personal hygiene during their menstrual cycle. 
So I could say, your very best things you could do for God are the equivalent of female products used every month. But instead I just say, no, the message of the gospel is that you, that you suck. See, if, we, if that wasn't the case, we wouldn't need a Savior to begin with. We would need no Savior whatsoever. There is little difference between us and Father Abraham. And I think Joshua is contrasting this for us. The beginning of chapter 23, let me tell you about the faithfulness of God. The beginning of chapter 24, let me tell you about the unfaithfulness of even someone that you look up to, like Father Abraham, who when God called him, he was out worshiping other gods. That's good news. Because that's called grace. And it's available to any one of us. Any one of us that's available to. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And some of you, I imagine, might just need some rest for your soul today. Verse 3, Then I took your father, Abraham. I took him from beyond the river, and I led him through all the land of Canaan, and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, I brought you out. I brought you out. I brought you out. He's reminding them of the long journey that God has taken them through. Then... I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Verse 7, And when they cried to the Lord, He put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them, and your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. You saw it. Some of them would still be alive, those under the age of 20. They saw the things that he's speaking of here. Verse 8. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. This is the story of the talking donkey. Some of you may remember. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. Verse 11, and you went over the Jordan. Now we're caught up to the beginning of Joshua 1 now. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your I did that. I gave them into your hand. And verse 12, And I sent the hornet, more on that in a moment, I sent the hornet before you and drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. You didn't do it. 
I did it. I gave you, verse 13, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. I did that for you. I did it, God says. I made it happen. Here you're thinking it's because of how awesome you are or how skilled your military or generals are. It's not. I did it. Lest you start to think too highly of yourselves. And of course, that's the whole point here when he speaks of the reference back in verse 12 of the hornet. There are several suggestions as to the identity of the hornet, but most believe that he's speaking metaphorically here, representing the terror and the panic that an encounter with Israel and their God would bring about. And that's the point of this historical narrative that he's just given in his little group huddle. Really big huddle, actually. But that's the point. The point is, is that throughout the course of their history, from Abraham to present day, God fought for Israel. It was no accident whatsoever that any of these things happened. It wasn't a matter of, well, it was just random luck that these things happened to play out the way they did. God knew what he was doing the whole time. This was God's plan. He wasn't winging it. And so then we come to verse 14. It says, Now therefore, Joshua tells them, this should be your response, okay? I've just reminded you about how awesome, how amazing God is. So here's your response in case you you need a clue. Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods, that's strange, that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and served the Lord. Now we know, going back to verse 2, we learned that Israel's ancestors worshipped other gods early on while they were still in Mesopotamia. But here Joshua fills us in in some details that we might not be aware of. And that is, is even while they were in Egypt, they worshipped other gods. There is no reference in the book of Exodus to such false worship occurring, but we know because of Leviticus 17.7, as well as Deuteronomy 32.16-17, as well as now the Joshua passage here in chapter 24, there's at least three references to this sort of nonsense going on, even in the lives of some of the people in this present generation. Verse 15, and if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord. If it's evil in your eyes. In other words, if you're thinking about everything I just said, if you're imagining everything I just said, this whole historical narrative, if you're looking back on everything I just said and you're not buying it, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One of the most famous verses in the book of Joshua. The implication of these verses is that Israel had never truly rid itself of false worship. This is still going on. 
shouldn't be going on. Still going on. And so now he's he's drawn a line of sand. This ends today. Some of you, you've been creating these idols for yourself, clinging to these other gods. I'm not talking about wooden or metal statues, little gods that you create and you worship. Whether it's a person that you are involved with, or images on a computer screen, or academic excellence at all costs, or whatever it may be. He's saying, choose today whom you're going to serve. Because up until this point, you've been going at like halvesies. Like, oh, I'm going to follow God while you drag around this idol behind you the whole way. No, no, that, that ends right now. We're done now. We're done right now. You're going to choose who you're going to serve. He is asking, he is challenging Israel to choose its loyalties. And the thing is, is that for them to do, do this, to embrace Israel's God, they will have to reject all other idols and gods. They cannot say, I'm going to serve God, and then just hold on to that other idol in their life. That's what they've been doing. Not anymore. It ends right now. It ends today. I'm an old man. I'm about to die, Joshua says. I'm concerned. In case you guys didn't hear chapter 23, last week's sermon, I'm concerned. You guys are going to completely drop the ball. So today, today it ends. You're either wholeheartedly in or you're not in at all. So here's their response. Verse 16, Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did those great signs in our sight. Notice sight, right? This is what I did in my Bible for those of you who can see it. See, I drew a circle around sight here in verse 17 and then I drew a circle around eyes up here in verse 14 and then drew a, lo- a line connecting eyes in verse 14 down to sight because there's the, there's the connection between the verses. Joshua's concerned in verse 14 that yeah, maybe you guys don't see the things the way you should actually be seeing them when you think about everything that God's done. And then in their response, they say, no, we do see it. We do see it. We're not looking at it in a wrong way or in an evil way that Joshua thought maybe they were. They say, no, no, we have seen the great signs that God has done, how he has, verse 17, how he has preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. We're in. They acknowledge that everything that Joshua has described so far throughout this chapter, the historical narrative that showcases the magnificence and power and awesomeness of God, they say, no, 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 we've seen it too. Right? You see that? Yeah, yeah, we saw it. We saw it all. In other words, 
Everything that Joshua described throughout this chapter is not mere chance. It is not mere coincidence as to what has occurred in their lives. Not random. No such thing as random to God. This makes me think of times when my father, he's not a Christian, not not even close. Times when over the last, I think since probably 2013 or 2014, where he said, hey, can you, uh, can you do your thing and, uh, you know, for this guy, this friend of mine who's in the hospital, he doesn't even like to use the word like prayer. Can you do your, you know, your, your chaplain, your, your thing, and just, because my buddy, they're, they're not expecting him to make it. It's probably happened four times over the last four years. And so I intervene, and I pray. I have, I do. And God shows up. God answers my prayer. Follow up with my dad. Two months later, the guy's never supposed to be able to walk out of the hospital. He does. This happened probably four different times on four different occasions. I say, how about that, Dad? What do you think? I think it's coincidence, Joe. That's what Joshua is getting to when he says, if it's evil in your sight, right? Let me tell you about all the faithfulness of God, okay? And I'm concerned it might be evil in your sight so that you, you chalk it up as all these like powerful, awesome signs of God that it's just random coincidence, chance, and they say, no, 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 no. No, we see it the way you see it. Like, God has been with them every step of the way. It wasn't just random coincidence. From Abraham and Mesopotamia to their miraculous victories, outnumbered a million to one, basically, throughout the Joshua campaigns and conquests. No, it's not random. It's not chance that they're here right now at Shechem, the place where it all began centuries earlier. And so they say, We'll serve the Lord. He's our God. And at this point, it's almost anticlimactic that the story doesn't end right here. Like, curtain call, applause, a wonderful, everything's tied up so nicely. And then you read the next two verses. It's kind of shocking. Verse 19. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. One commentator says this is perhaps the most shocking statement in the Old Testament. A deep paradox. Understand what's just happened, okay? Choose today whom you'll serve, right? As for me and my house, I'll serve the Lord. One of the famous Joshua verses. The people say, okay, yep, yep, we'll serve God. And then Joshua says, no, you won't. <laughs> like, what do you want, Joshua? No, you won't. Yeah, we will. Nope, you're not going to serve him. Pretty sure we are. No, you're not. And then he says he won't forgive your sins or your transgressions. There's some theological implications right there, if I've ever heard so.
The statement that he will not forgive their sins is obviously not an absolute statement. It's not a timeless statement or principle. But it is certainly conjoined, and we understand it in lieu of what he tells us about the character of God. That is key to understanding this verse. Who is he? He's a jealous God, and he's a holy God, and he will not play second best to your idols. In other words, you want his forgiveness? It's not going to be like how it's been where you say, I'm going to serve God while you drag your idols behind you. You won't have his forgiveness. Because your faith at that point is nothing but just superficial. You're just a joke. You're a joke. That's it. God's very nature sets him apart from all other gods. God is not going to be played as second best. Like He's not going to be used as some of, some of us use him as this ATM machine in which you come when you need him, you come when you want him, you come when you're bored, or you come only when you want his blessings so you can make another withdrawal, so you can get it, oh, I got my withdrawal, and then go out and buy more of your own idols. We won't be, we won't be used like that. You won't really have him or his forgiveness if that's how you're coming to him. In other words, Joshua's trying here to purge the people from these false notions of cheap grace. Unless you think cheap grace is simply an ancient Near East problem, let me tell you, it is not. It is a problem that permeates the American church today. Cheap grace, superficial faith, easy believism. And of course, on the opposite side, men like John MacArthur, his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, or it could be called Lordship Salvation, is in opposition to this cheap grace. It's not a 2018 issue. It's an issue right here in this story. Cheap grace, easy believism, this is what I mean. Right? You don't want to go to hell? You want to make sure you go to heaven when you die? All right, this is all you need to do. You just pray this prayer. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Good to go. And so then what do you have? You have a massive amount of people who come, Christmas and Easter. They ask Jesus to come into their heart. They pray the sinner's prayer. You never see him again. And in this almost papal-like Vatican way... Saved. Next. Saved. Next. And we pronounce salvation on people who haven't actually biblically responded to the gospel. I love George Whitfield. I don't know if you know George Whitfield. You should know George Whitfield. George Whitfield preached during the Great Awakening. People would come after he'd preached. they say, Mr. Whitfield, how many people got saved after you preached? And he'd say, I don't know. If that happened today, we'd say, Mr. Whitfield, let me enroll you in an online evangelism class. You've you got to know. That's, that's evangelism 101. How, how do you say you don't know how many people, right? Whitfield would say, I don't know. We'll see in a few months. We'll see what sort of soil they're planted in. That's a Bible story somewhere, I think, right? And we do that. I remember how alarmed I was when I was a senior at Liberty, to find out the phrase, ask Jesus to come into my heart, 
was found nowhere in Scripture. My world was a little rocked, and I was a little upset. Felt like I had been given a false bill of goods. That's, that's how you get saved. That's, that's, that's what being a Christian's about. It's just about praying the prayer, and then I find out that phrase isn't even in the Bible. This is what I mean by cheap grace. This is what I mean by easy believism. And this is what Joshua is trying to purge the people from. This sort of superficial Christmas, Easter time, faith, coming, warming a pew, that's it, nothing more. Israel, you, you can't serve God on your own without divine assistance. Israel, you can't serve God alone without divine grace. Israel, apart from true repentance and faith, you can't really follow God. Oh, that you would bear, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Israel. Now that's a Bible verse. Someone named John the Baptist said that to a bunch of religious guys and posers who came and wanted to be baptized. He didn't say, oh, well, just ask Jesus to come into your heart. No, he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you brood of vipers. Which is a highly offensive thing to say. But he said it. <laughs> Love the Baptist. He said it because they needed to hear it. That was probably the most loving thing for him to say. This is harsh right here. Choose today whom you'll serve. Oh, we'll follow Jesus, right? We'll follow God. No, you won't. No, you won't. And oh, by the way, oh, by the way, if you guys don't truly deal with these sins in your life that you've been clinging to ever since you left Egypt, that even Father Abraham was involved in Mesopotamia, if you don't ever truly repent, you won't have his forgiveness. You won't. I mean, this is a little tough love, like, workshop that Joshua's having with the people, right? <laughs> On the brink of him dying. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and you serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm. He will consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we'll serve God. I think this is highly problematic. Right? Choose a day whom you'll serve. We'll serve God. No, you won't. No, no, we got it. We're good. Like, that's their response, right? I can almost imagine, like, that's like the tone, like, no, no, we're good, Joshua, we're, we're good, we got this. Instead of asking the question, why are you saying this to us? Why, why would you challenge us? We respond, and then you say, no, we won't? What do you think, what do you understand that we, we're not getting right now? Or, or, Joshua, pray for us that we might serve him wholeheartedly. What's the response? No, we got this, man, we're good. And you can see it, right? Maybe my tone conveys with the feelings here in the text. I think it's highly problematic. And once again, Joshua's trying to purge them from this shallow, superficial faith that basically thinks, I can serve God, and yet all the while hold on to these idols that I've been carrying with me ever since I left Egypt. Or ever since you came home from, came back from summer break. Whatever. Applications can flow. If you're thinking of it, that's... Probably good enough. 
There's only so much Joshua can do. So this is what he says. And here is part of the, the covenantal renewal ceremony. Then Joshua, verse 22, said to the people, Okay, okay. So here's how it's going to work. You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth. That's a tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us. For it is heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Right? It's metaphorically, not that it literally heard. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. Then in verse 29, it says, After these things, Joshua Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. The title, Servant of the Lord, is used for the very first time in this book. It was one that the author of Joshua carefully avoids giving to him prematurely. It's a title that's referred to to Moses 14 times during this book. And now, now he hears it, right? He hears, I can imagine, well done, good and faithful servant, right? Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, at 110 years old. After 18 sermons, his time comes to an end. And he has, he has led the people well. He is a great example of what leadership looks like, both on the battlefield and also spiritually. Great example. And then it goes on to say this, And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timioth Sirah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel as the bones of Joseph. As for the bones of Joseph, now this is a little interesting, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt. They buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Israel, going back to Genesis chapter 50, 25, and 26, they, they made a promise that they would bury Joseph in the land that they would one day possess. They're keeping their promise here. And they're keeping their promise here. Chapter 24, the point of this story, lest you miss it, is that Joshua is saying, is that if you're going to serve the Lord with superficial faith, surface level, you're not really serving God at all. That's, that's the point of Joshua 24. You're going to serve him with superficial faith, You're not really serving him at all. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself, Israel, and think that you can serve him while you cling to these idols in your life that really you don't want to let go of because you love them more than God and think that somehow you're doing God this great honor and favor. You're not. You're a joke. 
So choose today. Some of you have been just playing a game. Playing a game. And your faith isn't really all that real. Like you know the answer's here, but it's just not real. It's not in its proper place. You've wandered and departed from the path. So I tell you what Joshua told his people. Choose today. Choose today whom you will serve. Like, stop being half-hearted Christians and go big or go home. Because Jesus is not looking to recruit fair-weather disciples who serve them only when they want to, who serve them only when it's convenient for them, who serve Him only when they need Him. Choose today whom you're going to serve. Stop making excuses today, people of God. And yet, and yet, be encouraged, like Father Abraham, that even the worst of sinners are candidates for God's grace. It doesn't matter how much you've messed up. And that's good news. Think about the beginning of chapter 23. Let me tell you about the faithfulness of God. Beginning of chapter 24. Let me tell you about how unfaithful all your family members were. Like, if there's hope for people like Father Abraham, if there's hope for Rahab the prostitute, if there's hope for the Gibeonites who lied their tails into this, like, messed up alliance, and yet God is still merciful, then that is good news for those of us in here who've just royally fumbled and continue to fumble things up on our way to serve God. That in partakers of the grace of God, we might join with Joshua and say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord today. Maybe I haven't, but today, today, today we will. And every day forth, no more excuses.